You're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for May 21st, 2023, the seventh Sunday of Easter. Today's sermon was given by the Reverend Peter Walsh. It's based on John chapter 17, verses 1 through 11. Good morning again to those of you here and those of you who are streaming with us. Perhaps we might start with something of a deep breath. For the sermon today is not for the religiously faint of heart, and the reason for that is the gospel today is not for the religiously faint of heart. As we all know, in particular since we have been in John's gospel for some time, that John's gospel is a mystical treatise, and as such, John uses a type of language and a perspective that plums mystical truth and transcends the particularities of time and space. Uh, Hence that, uh, with that, some of the voicing that we hear in John's Gospel might be a little challenging for us to pick up right away. I want you to think for a moment about your own prayer lives. How much of your own prayer life do you spend uh, inviting God into your spirit? We even have, as I'm so attached to, as you know, Maranatha, the last prayer in the New Testament, which means, come Lord. But today's gospel is really Maranatha in reverso. Today we go into Jesus's prayer life. We go into Jesus's spiritual consciousness. As you know, we often speak about the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught his followers, which we get primarily in Matthew chapter 6. Now, some of the the commentators about prayer will say, well, this is not the Lord's Prayer, because there's no way that Jesus could pray this prayer, because it has the petition to forgive us our trespasses, to forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin or trespass against us. This is the prayer certainly that Jesus taught his disciples, but the prayer that we have today is Jesus's prayer. This is not our prayer, and it is the longest prayer in the Gospels and in the New Testament, but we can use some insights from the so-called Lord's Prayer to understand what Jesus is saying in the Lord's Prayer, in his prayer. I think you would all agree with me also that prayer is self-revelatory. In other words, take a look at your prayer life. What is happening in your soul, the petitions you have, the desires you have, and to look at those is to learn about yourself. And Jesus's prayer is self-revelatory. It does reveal things of Jesus's self, but it is also revelatory, as we might speak of the book of Revelation. It also reveals God. In addition, we find here uh, Jesus's prayer, as you know, is taking place at the Last Supper. And this is the final prayer of the so-called last discourse. And Jesus will be dead in 18 hours from this prayer. And I wonder if you might just take a milla moment and think about what it is that you will be praying 18 hours before you know you're going to die. 
Because that's what we get here, Jesus knowing that he is going to be dead soon. And the prayer begins, and Jesus looked up to heaven. I just happen to think this is kind of a chuckle, because when we pray, we tend to look down. We even have a phrase for it, now let us bow our heads in prayer. But if you look in the New Testament, they look to heaven. Jesus looks upward and uh, oftentimes props in what is known as the Iran's position in this position, opening their heart to the sun, to God. And he begins with the word Father. Now this comes as no surprise to us since we were taught the Our Father. But it's important for us as we somewhat know the amount of intimacy that is packed in this word those of us who spend a lot of time in church know that the, the word for that is Abba, a, a, a term of endearment. But in John's gospel, it's important for us to understand that the intimacy of this word Father in a completely different way. The distinguishing characteristic of Jesus' prayer life is the father-son relationship that he has with the father. And the Gospel of John in particular reveals to us that Jesus's relationship with God the Father is unique and it is direct and it is intimate. So most of us, if you think about your prayer life, we, our prayer lives are like the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Such an incredible centerpiece there and super hard to look at because they don't let you lie on the floor. So as you know, at the top of the Sistine Chapel, you have God the Father racing through the heavens uh, on the move in the power of the Spirit with a, with a muscular finger. And on the other end, you have a atom with a finger that is languid. It's just hanging there. And as the father races to bring life to the languid atom. And in most of our prayer lives, we live in that, in that space between the finger of God and our finger. And in our prayer lives, we hope to connect ourselves with the divine. But most often, we experience something of this, the separation. But to understand Jesus's prayer life is to say this. Jesus experiences divine communion with the Father in all the power that is painted in the top of the Sistine Chapel. And it's not possible to overstate the importance of that mystical communion that Jesus experiences with the Father. Today, for a moment, let's see if we can feel our way into Jesus's communion. So anytime you have ever had a movement of grace, a deep consolation where you had a vision or an audition or a, a warming of the heart and you thought, oh my gosh, God is real and I experience it and I feel it and you feel an awakening mind, body, and soul. Well, take that and multiply it by an enormous exponent and you begin to understand the communion that Jesus had with the Father. And this communion is behind 
all of the works of Jesus and all of the words of Jesus. And he says, Father, the hour has come. In other words, it's time. And we know that in John's Gospel, almost every phrase has many, many meanings, but the term, the hour has come, is super packed. And uh, it is the time for the consummation of Jesus' life to come to its fullness. And it is time for the crucifixion, death, resurrection, and ascension to happen. This is, as Jesus tells us, that which he came for. And he is now saying, Father, it's time. And he says, glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Now here we get, we might understand a little bit of something. It's a little bit like our saying, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now as a boy, I absolutely had no idea what hallowed be thy name meant, but it means something like uh, worship and praise and adoration for the divine being of God, for the who-ness of God, which as we draw in a closer communion, we will freak out in adoration for the being of God. That's exactly what is happening in the book of Revelation when they are gathered around the throne of God. And you hear that they are singing all the time. They're singing in praise and adoration in our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. And now Jesus is saying glory. And the word glory again means so many different things in John's gospel. But it certainly means and includes the brilliance of the divine splendor, the divine being who is light and life in love, all in capital L's. Eugene Peterson, uh, the great Bible translator and super humble and amazing human being, uh, translated the, the, the Bible in what is known as the message. And he translates this sentence as, display the bright splendor of your son so that the sun in turn may show your bright splendor. And then Jesus gives us something of the meaning of his life. What is the meaning? He's got 18 hours to live. What's the meaning of his life? And it is that it is to give us eternal life. It is to give us the life that is God's. That's the meaning and purpose of Jesus's life. And then he says, I glorified you on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And this is a little bit like our praying, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, what Jesus is saying is the heavenly desires of the Father uh, have been fulfilled. That will has been done and fulfilled in Jesus. And Jesus' purpose is co-consonant and eternal with the very Father's purposes. And he goes on to say a little bit later in the passage that Jesus, that his mission, that his life has been successful. And it has been successful in part because he has revealed the word, W-O-R-D in capitals. He has revealed the word. He has revealed 
what God the Father is like, what the being of God is like, and he has revealed through his words the message of God. What Jesus is saying that out of that communion that he has with the Father, the things that he says are very particular, and they are spoken to our human hearts. These are not, this is why Jesus does not chat in the Gospels. Jesus speaks the word of God particular to our particular needs. Perhaps you might think about a time in your own life when you're having a terrible go of it, a terrible wrestle, and somebody delivers a word to you that is like a release of a dam. Suddenly, you're back in the flow of life. And that is a little bit of what Jesus is talking about. His mission has been successful because he has delivered that word. And this success comes radiantly through in the crucifixion, in his last word, it is finished. Now, it is finished is a statement of victory. It's not like, oh, wow, this game is over. We got to take the best player out and not wear him out. This is to say Jesus has fulfilled completely his mission on earth. And perhaps we are to find the meaning of our lives as Jesus followers in the meaning of his life. And you might think about what is the purpose and meaning of your life. And as you draw closer to the end of your life, which we all do day by day, are you fulfilling the purpose of your life? And when you come to the end, can you say, it is finished, I have done the purpose of the meaning of my life as is found in the life of the Father. Not in public opinion, not in your opinion, but in the opinion of the Father in heaven. Jesus reflects and reveals his life as a life of departure and return. Verse 5 says, So now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. So as you know, all of the Gospels begin in different places. Those of you who are in the church can see when you look forward to the Reredos where St. Mark's Gospel begins. It's in the bottom there in the center, and you can see Jesus being baptized by John in the Jordan River. But John's gospel begins in the heavens. It begins in a very mystical place. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It begins in the mystical unity and duality of of Word, of, of God, and the Word Logos. But in that prologue, by the time we get to verse 14, The word, the Logos, is replaced by the Son. So we get, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. And now, because the hour has come, Jesus is saying it's time for him to return to the glory and splendor of heavenly glory. And this movement of coming downness and returning is also can be seen on our Reredos with the coming down out of the hand of God of creation and humanity's return to, to the Lord, 
But in Jesus' life, that story of salvation is particular to his being. Now, as the prayer unfolds and we get toward the end of it, we enter into the part of the prayer that is known as the high priestly prayer. When Jesus prays for his friends, and then later he prays for us, for the friends of Jesus that he has not yet met who will come forward in time. And this would be similar to you being on your deathbed and praying for your family and your friends, your loved ones. There's much tucked into this prayer, and we get just the beginning of it this year, and next year on this seventh Sunday, we will get the middle of it, and then in two years, we'll get the end of that prayer. But just to cut one portion of it, what Jesus is praying for us is that we might share in the mystical union of his relationship with the Father. That that's what he is trying to do, to return us to that place. We might say, and I'm changing the language, it's not in, the, it's not in John's Gospel, we might say that in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden, they lost intimacy with God. And then all hell broke loose. And what Jesus is doing in this mystical point of view is returning us to the Eden of divine communion with God. And so the consummation of his, of his life's work, of his prayer, is that, that everybody would return to the heavenly glory that is shared with eternity but that that heavenly glory is not just for the return to heaven, it's also to be participated in now. And this we'll get next year, sorry, I'm fast forwarding. When Jesus prays in the prayer for the divine indwelling of the Father and the Son in the depths of our souls. So in other words, it's there already. He has given us this gift. And to experience the gift, one does not climb the ladder to the heavens. It's just not possible. In the mystical life, to go up, you often have to go down. Remember, the language is all turned around. And so to experience the divine indwelling of the Father and the Son is about letting go, about dropping in, to an indwelling that is deep in our being. And so if you're wondering what to do during your meditation, perhaps you might simply ask the Lord to drop you in to the divine indwelling that is deep within you. Because it is this indwelling that Jesus gives to those who love him. And that indwelling, that splendor life, that life of divine splendor, which we can experience now in coming fully when we die, is there for us because that is the meaning of Jesus's life for each of us. It is that we might return to that which we were originally created for, which is love and communion with the Father. I know that's all so, sim so simple. 
and that you understood everything I said. Uh, let us pray for it, because the Lord can deliver many things to us that we cannot earn on our own. It is a gift from God. Amen. You can find more sermons on our website, www.stmarksnewcanaan.org.